0: Good afternoon. You guys feeling okay today? Yeah. Awesome, man. I just want to first to say uh, a big thanks to Dr. A for uh, the honor to be up here. Appreciate that. And uh, some props to the worship team. You guys are crushing it. Uh, good, yeah, good work up there. And and to keep that Phil Wickham song in the original key, I think that was that means a lot because that's uh, not easy to do. So anyway, because uh, my man can get up there. Uh, it is an honor to be with you guys, and just privileged to be here. A little bit about myself. Oh yeah, there's my lead singer. I just wanted to give you a little Phil Wickham props. That's, that's tough. Even if you dropped it down, that's still a lot. It's still tough. All right. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, we planted the church that we uh, that I still pastor seventeen, almost eighteen years ago. Um, our family, my wife and I, have been married for twenty years, uh, coming up on twenty one soon. Uh, We were not able to conceive naturally, and so we went uh, almost 10 years without children. God opened the door for us to adopt our first daughter, London. She'll be 13 uh, this year in a couple months. And we thought we were done. We thought that was it. We were excited, you know. I mean, whatever God had for us, we were cool with. Uh, but then uh, he opened up the door for us to adopt again in 2020. So we had a 10-year-old and then a newborn. And uh, so we thought, we've lost our minds. And then a year, about a year and a half later, we adopted our, our second daughter's biological brother, uh, also as a newborn. And so now we have a 13-year-old, a 2-year-old, and a 1-year-old. So it is absolutely positive we have lost our minds it was it was a maybe a couple of years ago but now it's it's wild uh because newborns in your 40s is 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 different just want to tell you just want to tell you, it's, it's not easy to go uh, actually a couple months ago we were we were traveling and um, you know traveling with three kids two of them in diapers uh, you know it's it's a struggle and we were getting to a hotel room it was late people were hungry they were cranky um, and uh, we got to the hotel front desk and they checked us in they gave us our, our room uh, our room numbers and they gave us a little key and most hotels nowadays they don't have the old physical key they got the little key card you know and you the magnetic Thing. You go to the door, and you, you click it, and it lets you in. So we're, uh, we're dragging all of our junk down the hallway, all the kids, the bags, the things. We're there for a night, but we looks like we're moving into the joint, you know. We have all this stuff. We get to the key, uh, to the door, and I look for the key. I get it out of my pocket. I go and I tap it, and I get the red light, blink, blink, blink. So you already know, my blood pressure's starting to increase And, uh, you know, my wife looks at me and says, you had a 50% 50 shot of picking the right side of the key and you picked the wrong one. You know, somehow it's that. That's my fault. So I flip it over. I tap it again. Uh, I get red lights. So that key's done. You know, I just throw it down the hallway. I pick out the next one. They gave me two. So I tap it. Red lights. Tap the other one. Red lights. Now I'm ready to just hurt somebody. I don't know. I'm just like done. So I go down to the to the front desk, and uh, I go and say, hey, these keys aren't working. You know, you check the rooms, make sure you're at the right room number, the whole nine, you go through things, and uh, they do it, they, they give me the keys, and they say, hey, did you have a, you have a magnet on you somewhere? And uh, I thought, yeah, of course, I just carry magnets with me all the time. I have a whole bag of them, and I threw the key right in there, and then I thought, oh, I got a wallet with a little, like a little money clip on it. And what I didn't know is that my wallet had erased the, the data that was imprinted on that room key. And the room key was going to give me access to the room, which is going to give me my rest and, and all the good things that I needed, you know, to, some calm. And there was something on my person that erased this, this thing that was going to be, give me access to something even greater, Right? See, God has imprinted on every single one of us an identity. It's hardwired in us. But the enemy constantly throwing at you things that is trying to erase that identity. Because if he can get you to forget who you are, he's won, right? Doesn't matter how hard you try. Doesn't matter if you move locations. If you have forgotten who God has hardwired you to be, then the enemy's already, he's already winning. And one of the things that the enemy throws at you, he throws at you things like approval, trying to uh, earn your way, or a fear of rejection. If he can get you to accept that as a part of your, uh, you know, a major part of your life, then, man, you're losing the God-given identity. He loves to throw at us earning love, or you're, you're an illegitimate son or daughter of God. You sort of just snuck in the back door, Right? or an unworthiness that you're not good enough, or even comparison that you're not God's favorite. Maybe you're sitting out there and you're like, I wish I was as talented as as my man here, or I, I, I wish I learned as well as, as this person. I, I'm not God's favorite. I don't feel like I'm ever on the inside of what God has for me. I'm, I'm just one of those extra on the outside. Well, Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 3 to 10 tell us this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us. Come on, say chose us. us. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us for adoption. Everybody say "Adoption." adoption. Through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his... Man, it pleased him to choose you into his family. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He didn't do it because your parents begged him to. He didn't do it because you come from the right side of the tracks or the wrong side. He did it because, oh man, it makes me happy to choose you to be part of my family as a son and daughter of God, to the pleasure of his will. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given freely to us in the one he loves. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches. This, This verse is just so good. I love these verses. This grace that he lavished on us, verse 8 says, with all wisdom and understanding, and he has made known to us the mystery of his will. We're his favorites. The book of Amos says he doesn't do anything without revealing it to the ones he loves, his chosen ones, his prophets. He's brought you on the inside. He is whispering the mystery of his will into your heart, even today if you're listening to it. You are God's favorite According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, verse 10, finally to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. We're, we're getting close to the reach the fulfillment of times to bring unity in all things in heaven under the earth, uh, under Christ. As a child of God, your identity is one that's chosen, is adopted, is loved, is appointed. You are his favorite. But also as a member of the, uh, the Gen Z, as a, as, as a child of your generation, you have a very particular identity as well. And the enemy would love to get you to forget that identity also. I recently read some work by these two guys named William Strauss and Neil Howe, and they talk about the four generational cycles that happen every four generations, and they go back centuries to show this thing into effect and how there are four generations in a cycle of which, and they all have very distinct characteristics. And I, I want to show you, if you've never heard this before, uh, what your identity actually looks like as a part of the generation that you are in. Now, I'm, I'm a millennial. I'm an oldest possible millennial. Um, there are maybe a, one or a few of them in here as well. There's some Gen Xers, and most, I think, in this room are probably in, in the Gen Z uh, category. Well, what does it actually mean? Um, the first generational cycle that they talk about in, in our time frame, in our century, is the builders. These are those that are born from 1928 to 1945. Their motto would be, anything we can do, we will do. Then they just set out, and they said, if we can do it, we're going to accomplish it, we're going to go for it. They were, they, they, one house, one wife, one car, one career. These were pioneers, my great-grandparents, maybe your great-great-grandparents, characterized by sacrificing, building, and establishing. Biblically, this would be like an Abraham, a patriarch, stepping into new frontiers and just building and creating a legacy for the generations that would follow. Then you had the next generation that came along in our century, the baby boomers, 1946, uh-oh, to 64, their motto was anything we, you can do, we can do better. We're going to do better than our parents did. We're going to have two houses, two cars, two careers, two wives, two divorces. He's like, no, no, not me, not me. They were characterized by achieving the dream at all costs. If I, if I have to neglect my children to go be better than my parents, man, so be it, you know? there became a little bit of a twist in this, this sense of accomplishment when, when the baby boomers came. And, of course, these are generalizations. These are not specific to every person. But as a generalization, uh, this was that, that, that characteristic. And we see this in Isaac, Abraham's son Isaac. He went and doubled what Abraham, he was doubly blessed as his father was. Then we move to the Gen Xers. Those born from 1965 to 1980. Their motto is, anything you can do, we don't want any part of. Forget you guys. They rejected cultural norms. They didn't want the white picket fence. And if they ever got it, they tore it down. It's something to feel right about this whole thing. It feels like my parents' world. They're characterized by a cynicism, a darker, pessimistic view of life. This is Jacob, the son of Isaac. He was a deceiver. He had everything at his hands. He just kept messing things up because he felt like it didn't fit him. Then we go to the fourth generation, the millennials, Gen Y, 1981 to 1996. This is characterized by the 12 tribes, Jacob's sons. They were an expanding generation. The millennial motto is all the things you didn't do, we kind of look forward to. Give a little bit of another twist. This is an expanding, multiplying generation characterized by innovation and redefining the parameters. The millennials, most of the millennials gave us this digital landscape that most of us are, live our lives in. They found a new pioneer place uh, that was a little bit different, and th- this will be the 12 tribes. Well, now we have a fifth generation, Gen Z. Those born from 1996 to 2012-ish, somewhere in there. And the motto of Gen Z is actually, anything we can do, we'll do. Identical to the motto of the pioneers that came almost 100 years prior to to this, 80 years prior to this, the essentials, no frills, just what's necessary, characterized by sacrifice and rebuilding and establishing again. This is Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons that were adopted in, that actually became world changers and through them came kings and prophets into the history of, of Israel. It's your generation that is going to ignite revival. Now back to William Strauss and Neil Howe. They actually said after the four generations cycle through, the fifth generation will go back and be the beginning of a brand new cycle. And what they say is that Gen Z has already begun to uh, characterize or take on the traits of those back in the 1920s. This idea of pioneering all over again, doing what's necessary, forgetting about the frills, not buying, uh, taking the bait of what culture is telling us is really most important. Gen Z, you are the ones that are going to repeat the cycle and bring us back to the the basics, back to the root, back to the foundation. It's your generation that's going to get us there. And an apology is owed to you because we're handing you a bunch of mess. A disaster but it's your generation that's going to pioneer through it and not worried about more than you can handle anything we can do we're going to do I'm going to cut through the noise and I'm going to get to what God's called us to for time's sake I'm going to hurry through this so what does that mean you're going to need to fight you're going to need to fight for what's right and important what's necessary things like the authority of God through scripture you're going to need to fight for morality and what authentic community looks like and deep relationships and the soul of humanity. You're the first generation that has to deal with AI. And if, and if you get caught using chat GTP for, for your papers, it's, I know it's a big, is it? All right, maybe you guys all know about that. Maybe you do. I don't know. Okay, okay. Because right, I'd be like, I would never write a paper ever again. I'd just say, hey, hermeneutics, let's go. Uh, AI it can write better than we can write. Can can orchestrate music better than we can orchestrate, that can create art that looks better than what we can do. And so you're the generation that has gonna a, have to answer the question of well, what makes us, what makes the soul of a human better than what artificial intelligence can produce? Well, I don't have an answer. You guys are the ones that are have to figure out what that is. You're gonna have to fight to understand what's true, what the soul of humanity looks like. Make up your mind now to swim against the current of Culture. We don't have time to dig into this, but Pastor Sam and I were just rapping about this last night. I, I believe the current value, the number one value in our culture, is not you can't tell me what to do. It's you can't tell them what to do. And we've, a, a, a culture is telling us your, your number one value is to go out and be a champion for other people to do whatever they want to do. It's a dangerous setup. It's a danger. It feels noble. It feels like I'm being a protector. It feels like I'm fighting for other people. But there is a question of like, well, hold on, is is, is what they're doing actually right? Is Is what they're doing healthy for them? Maybe I need to fight for what's true and right and say, you know what? We need to pave a path for those that don't even know what is right. And I want them to find health and wholeness and love in Christ Jesus. That's what we need to actually fight for. Be a protector for what the enemy is trying to steal, kill, and destroy all right number two you're gonna to need to fight number two you're gonna to need to build you got to clear the rubble that we have left for you we left you a mess we have rejected rebelled relabeled redefined everything in an attempt to look wise and have autonomy you're gonna to need to find truth and establishment establish it third you're gonna to need to sacrifice don't buy the hype you don't need the yeezys and I know i got a pair on right now. You're thinking, hypocrite. It was a gift. I just think they look fly. But <laughs> don't buy the hype. to get you to lure you into the things and the stuff and what culture says is, says is going to look good. No, no, no. Learn to sacrifice. I don't need that. I need to accomplish the call of God on my life. And that might be a distraction, a deterrent to do what God's actually called me to do. Don't be lulled into a sleep by things and stuff and pleasures. Have a hunger for God, his kingdom, making his name known among the nations. I'll close out with this this thought and tag team over to Pastor Sammy in a minute. I kind of hurt to twist like that. I don't know if I could do that again. Can I just do this? All right. The greatest threat to God's call on your life, God's will on your life, is an unsurrendered dream. I'm going to repeat that. The greatest threat to God's will on your life, in your life, is an unsurrendered dream. Jesus, about a week before he goes to the cross, he's at a dinner, and he's sitting there, and this woman, an uninvited guest, comes in. You know the story. She has a box, an alabaster box, full of really, really expensive, costly perfume. And I don't know if we give enough airtime to the awkwardness of this moment, They're sitting there having a meal in between appetizers in the main course. I mean, they're just having a good time, munching on some chips and queso at the table. I don't know. That's what I hope Jesus ate. It feels like it's what I would eat. And this woman steps in and she breaks open this perfume box and pours it out over him and begins to wash his feet with her tears and his hair. You can feel the, the room just kind of tighten up. The tension just sort of fills the room. What in the world? Is she doing? And the text even tells us that they say, man, if Jesus knew who she was, she wouldn't even, he wouldn't even let her touch him. I mean, if he if he really knew what was going on, all of that is is an aside for a moment. I want to focus in on what the alabaster box represented. It was a perfume box, it was costly, it was expensive. And what that tells me is she had been saving it up for something, most likely for a dowry. That when she became engaged or betrothed to, to someone that she, her family could pay for a, a, a way into being married and a security and a future. And instead of hoarding her future, she poured it out over Jesus as an act of worship. You have a picture of what your future looks like, and it might be vague, it might be foggy, but you have an idea that maybe the white picket fence is what you're going for. Maybe it's, a, it's, it's being married and 2.5 kids, and maybe it's a Tesla in the driveway, or maybe it's making a certain amount of money, or maybe it's being on the mission field. Who knows what it actually looks like, but you probably have a picture of what your hope and your future looks like. But can I challenge you today to take that picture of your future and pour it over Jesus as an act of worship and say, God, no matter what happens to my tomorrow, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for what you have for me. If you don't give me the 2.5 kids and I never get uh, to, to, to the place of this, uh, what I think culture is defining as success, if I never get there, I'm pouring it out to you and whatever my tomorrows look like, I'm okay with it because it's an act of worship. I'm surrendering my future to you. That is a spark that's going to bring revival. And Jesus says, you know what? You don't realize this, but this woman has anointed me for my burial, for my death. And I just want to propose to you, what if an entire generation sacrificed their future and instead of paving the way for Jesus' death, you paved the way for Jesus' return? Right? I'll wrap with this and hand it over. What's the dream in your heart? The future you want God to bless. Give it to him. Pour it over him. You are a revival generation. Psalms 145 says, I will exalt you, my God and King. I'll praise your name forever. Every day, I'll praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Verse 4, listen to this. One generation commends your works to another. This is a fulfillment of scripture right here and now. I, I, I in one generation, am talking about God's works to another generation. But there's going to be a moment that you have the baton handed to you. It's coming soon. Will you tell of the works of God to the next generation? They tell of your mighty acts. Verse five, they speak. Of your glorious splendor and your majesty. And and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of your power, of your awesome works. And I'll proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyful singing of your righteousness. Here's the thing. You can't tell of something you've never experienced. For you to actually be the generation that God has called you to be. Now is the time to cry out for a move of God. So when the baton is in your hand and it's time for you to tell of the great works of the Lord, you can say of yourself, not my parents' day, not I heard of a miracle one place in time. And with a group of people, you can say, I saw it with my own eyes. I lived it. He lit a fire in my bones that I'll never forget so you can declare the mighty works of God to the next generation. Now is the time. Don't believe the naysayers. The best is yet to come when you pour out your dream over Christ as an act of worship.